Hello, Gregoire. Hello, Edgar. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. So, what are we talking about today? Today, we are going to talk about beginnings of therapy, which will be followed in two months by a podcast on ends of therapy. Sounds like an interesting theme for this podcast. We look forward to hear comments and receive questions from our audience. You can find us either on SoundCloud, Facebook or Twitter or directly through the email discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. We look forward to your questions and comments. My name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Danielsen. Welcome to discussions on psychoanalysis. Edgar, I think today we will start with beginnings of therapies, especially with how things start even before the first session. Let's go. Maybe we could start with how things happen while we were in training. In our institute, we have an intake coordinator. She will evaluate the patient and she can match a patient and a therapist. How did you experience that? Most of the patients I was referred to came as a good match for me. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I was a good match for them. I appreciate the way the intake coordinator will describe the patient and try to match our strength as therapists and also our interests. Mm -hmm. What is a little bit confusing at times is that we have to wait for the patient to call the therapist, which then becomes, from my perspective, it's an intriguing process because the patient calls twice. Yes. Calls the intake coordinator, goes through the intake interview, and then calls the therapist. Yeah, there's something odd about that. As if patients had to make the request twice. Twice. I felt sometimes that patients' requests were addressed to the intake coordinator and that for some of them, the request for therapy actually dried out after the intake coordinator referred them to someone else. Even if, of course, it is the goal of the intake coordinator to refer the mm -hmm. patients to people in training or not, I think it is very likely that for some people, actually in their fantasies, the person they met first was the person they had to see and to restart the process with someone they don't know, mm -hmm. uh, probably uh, turn them off. Well, and that raises then another question for me. Once the patient has presented the presenting problem to the intake coordinator, then mm -hmm. comes to me, and I always want to hear from the patient mm -hmm. what brings the patient to therapy. So again, the patient will have to relate the presenting problem, and it sounds redundant. And did you actually um, read the notes that the intake coordinator provided to us? Yes. In my case, I always listened carefully to the intake coordinator's comments, and then when I receive the intake evaluation, I would read it before seeing the patient. It has changed now that I'm in private practice mm -hmm. because I am no longer seeing patients in the institute. Therefore, the evaluation comes to me through mail and it takes some time before I get the evaluation. You mean from the intake coordinator? Correct. Okay. Therefore, nowadays, what happens often is that I see the patient before I even get the evaluation okay. through mail. While I was in the institute, of course, I would just receive directly the evaluation. I was there almost every day. It's, therefore, it was easy mm -hmm. to access the evaluation. What about you, Gregoire? In your case, do you read the evaluation or do you wait to see the patient? Well, just like you, I am in practice now, so I, I don't receive any evaluations anymore. I uh, opt out of TRCC. But at the time... I actually uh, just to clarify, TRCC is the referral arm of the institute, the exactly. Theodore Reich Clinical okay. Center. I think at the time I did not read the evaluations 
Do you have a clear idea why you did not? My sense was that as I practiced before as a clinical psychologist slash psychoanalyst back in France, I didn't feel the need to refer to um, those notes. Mm -hmm. And I, just like you, I felt like there was something redundant in this process. It's an institutional limit that we are uh, describing. And I felt like it would be already redundant to uh, the patient, even if talking to us would be a different experience than talking to the intake coordinator. So I didn't want to add a layer of redundance by having read them too. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be surprised by what they could tell me. I did read them eventually, yes. but I, I probably read them after I felt like the connection with the patient was well established. Mm. I hear what you say. There's one difference between our previous careers. You were in the mental health Field. I mean, before, I had a patient yes, before. Correct. While in my case, uh, once I began to train at MPIP, that was my first experience. Mm -hmm. I had never been in the mental health field. And I think in some ways that those evaluations can be very useful to people mm -hmm. who come to NPAP the same way you did. Yes. Even if I feel like it has its limitation in terms of clinical experience, it, it certainly reassures people who have uh, very little uh, or feel like they don't have enough clinical experience to see a patient right away. But it also creates a frame that is very artificial in the sense that we will not find that again after. Correct. It doesn't prepare us to be in private practice where no one is going to give us a brief about the person we're going to see. Even if I felt that the evaluations were very relevant, mm -hmm. yes. uh, most of the times I was yes. impressed by um, what uh, the intake coordinator could see in such a short time. Yes, I agree with you. They were extremely precise in many, many of the cases. Now, I'm thinking that this artificial frame that you're talking about is not exclusive of our institute. Yeah. There are other institutes and centers where candidates do the interview. Like in Iftar. Yes. Then the patient is referred to as someone else. Yeah, of course. So it's somehow alien to the psychoanalytic frame. Yeah. As I understand it. From what we can see, there's no way around it. No. But still, it should be pointed out so that it can be worked through a little bit. Correct. In mind at least. Yeah. As you pointed out, we couldn't call the patient, which is a big difference from what we are experiencing as private practitioners. Yes. But also, there was a number of no-shows that I think we don't experience today anymore. Correct. When we compare to private practice, the reality is that most of the calls we receive become at least a consultation. Yeah. But when we were referred a patient from the institute, there were many, many uh, no-shows. Yeah. And in fact, the process, as I remember it, is that we wait like three weeks. And if we don't get a call from the patient, then we return the case to be closed. Mm. Another thing is that at the time we were working, NPP did not allow for external referral for uh, candidates or members in training, as mm -hmm. we say specifically there. So I think today they allow for that because they understood that there was no legal restriction to that as long as uh, members in training were very clear that they were not licensed. Yes. But uh, the fact that I was the only French-speaking member in training at the time yes. made so that actually some people called and indirectly they were going to be referred to me. Mm. Because they had heard more or less directly that there was a French-speaking therapist mm -hmm. back there. I experienced something slightly different than some people did at the time by having people who, even if they went through the intake coordinator, already knew that it was just a step before the therapy. Seeing you, specifically. Yeah. Because which, you which, are French-speaking. Yeah, which I experienced because none of my English-speaking patients came to TRCC just to see me, mm -hmm. which was not the case for French-speaking patients. I don't recall anyone coming through the process to be with me, but I did experience a few cases that they wanted a Spanish-speaking therapist. Mm -hmm. And so at that point in time, I think there were two candidates who were Spanish-speaking, and there was a high probability that I would get the patient. Yeah, and in, in that sense, the probably for those people, for those patients, they experience the intake very differently. Yes. As we both know, and 
some of our audience also know, the patient may request something in particular. I received many of the referrals through my previous experience working with sexual minorities or people exploring their gender identity. And did you feel that this beginning of treatment was different in such situations? Uh, for some of the patients, yes, because in their fantasy, someone who either was part of a GLBT community or to explore gender identity, mm -hmm. they felt that they could understand, that I could understand them. Yeah, the positive transference. So, so the positive transference was established very quickly, okay. very early in the treatment. I guess this is it for part of where we are in training. Now we're going to move to what happens in private practice. Let's talk about the beginning of therapies while in private practice. As people might already know, Edgar, you are mostly working in network. That's correct. And I'm exclusively working out of network. And I think it creates a different connection to our patients. Yes. And from our patients to us. We can start with before we even meet those people. Do we feel like things are different in the way people connect to us? The most obvious difference is that they will reach out directly to us. In my case, they reach out to me because either they see my name in the health insurance directory mm -hmm. or they visit my website and they see that I am in network with a couple of health insurance companies. So that's the most obvious But not difference. because of who you are. You're raising a point that makes me smile. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's not about me. Yeah. <laughs> It's that's for your ego. That yeah, that's um, well, it's a, almost a narcissistic injury. Reality is that people who have health insurance and they are working in the city, they want someone who is close by, meaning, for example, I could go to therapy during my lunch break. Mm -hmm. uh, so they Who's close uh, by? Who has openings? Exactly. Oh, so they would call... <laughs> Edgar? Uh, they don't care. Danielson? Good. <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah, you are in network and are you accepting new patients? Yes, I am. Okay, great. You are like two blocks from my work. <laughs> You're <And> my choice. <laughs> You're my first choice. Strong transference. Yeah, it's quite a <laughs> strong positive transference, I guess. That well, would be you're, interesting. You're a very uh, <laughs> good object. <laughs> yes. You are where you need to be. <laughs> I have one of the features that they are looking for in a therapist, meaning I'm in network. Good. So that's quite fascinating for me. And when mm -hmm. I explain this to other people outside the field, you know, they ponder, well, I thought people would look for a therapist or for a physician because they have good references. Well, mm -hmm. not necessarily. Not so much. No. Being out of network, it is a little bit different. Yes. Because people have to looking for Correct. Uh, me, specifically, if they heard about me, or if they are looking for a French-speaking psychoanalyst or psychologist in Manhattan. But there's a significant difference in the way they shape their fantasies around me and the therapy between those who are referred to me by someone they know and those who just see my name on a directory mm -hmm. or on my website. And mm -hmm. I would say that the worst is the directory, meaning for me, psychology today. What do you mean by that? I'm trying to put things in boxes here because it's obviously more subtle than that and it depends yes. on every patient. But my experience was that when people ask around them and then they hear oh you should go see this person because i've experienced something good about this person or i've heard someone had a good experience with him the transference is already i would say deeper mm -hmm. they have more trust that you will take care of them i understand when they see you on the website you are in some ways already more unique than on the directory Mm -hmm. because you have more space to explain who you are, how you want to present yourself. Yes. And they have fewer names on mostly Google. When people go on Psychology Today, they have tons of people who pretend or actually to speak French. My suspicion is that a lot of them pretend that they speak French, but... Anyway, that's an interesting comment you're making. I have the same hunch about Spanish speaking. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I bet. When, <laughs> well, when you're yes. bilingual, you, you can smell that from far away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
But still, in contradiction to what I'm saying, uh, yes. I had someone recently who came to see me and explained that oh, she found me on Psychology Today and she, she felt like my face looked uh, non-threatening and that was uh, good enough for her. Mm. So I can mm -hmm. say that in that sense, the transference was already happening. I was more than just a name on a registry yes. uh, to that person. Mm -hmm. But still, I feel like Psychology Today's directory, even if it's very useful, people are just doing their market, just shopping around. Like, Correct. Why not? But we have to be sensitive to that aspect of how things start, even before the first session. Yes. You have mentioned the word market we're marketing and that raises questions for the psychoanalytic frame in what ways are we providing a product or not that's in my opinion one of the most difficult situations that we need to address as we start psychotherapy is that we are not offering a product as such and yet we still have to advertise yes, ourselves i agree with you i remember that back in france one colleague talked to me about a session she had with a therapist and the therapist got apparently very angry at her on the basis that she should not as a psychoanalyst sell herself hmm. that people should just come to her mm -hmm. and i feel like this is just not possible Not anymore. Uh, maybe uh, at some time it was. It was. Or so I have heard. Was yeah. it really? I don't know. I have read that people would graduate and open their offices and they will get people. Okay. They will get patients. Uh, it's but it's not longer today. the case, you yeah. know, especially when the, again, to use the same word, when the market is so saturated. Of course. With therapists, especially in New York City. Yeah, so I found that quite challenging to create my website because I mm -hmm. still wanted to express something of myself without pretending or illustrating the website as me just being any kind of product. Mm -hmm. I remember that some people at NPAP were advertising that we should actually do the other way around, that we should put pictures of happy people, of uh, sunsets, of, you know, good mm. feeling pictures. Mm-hmm because it reassures potential patients. Mm. I guess everybody is, is going to do the way they feel comfortable with, but really sure. I, I felt like this would lead people to expect something I would not be able to give them. Yes. Even if being a psychoanalyst means that you lead people to think that you will give something to them that you won't be able to give them, which is being cured. Mm. But... <laughs> Yeah, people come with extremely high expectations, uh, even if they are first in unconscious for most of them. But besides that a structural problematic, my sense is as psychoanalysts, we should be careful about how we advertise ourselves, even okay. if we should advertise ourselves. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you include in your website that addresses what you offer? I try to create a very simple website with a page where I briefly present myself, where I basically say things I would say in session. Like, I'm bilingual, clinical psychologist, psychoanalyst. Uh -huh. In parenthesis, again, in France, being a clinical psychologist means that you're going to be trained in psychoanalysis. It's pretty different from training in the U.S. I also keep it to minimal. I have a page on my fees, questions you should ask their insurance if they have one. And also, I try to maintain as much as possible, which is a difficult, some kind of a blog where I post pretty randomly little thoughts I have or comments mm -hmm. on an article I read okay. so that they get a sense of what I'm interested in, yes. how I think. Mm -hmm. I just put a picture of my face and some pictures of my office. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how did you think well, about Well, it's yours? similar to, to yours uh, in, in, in general terms. Um, I also include some quotes that I find appealing and that express something about psychoanalysis. For example, that we're trying to uncover some unconscious roots that sometimes manifest in symptoms like depression or anxiety and so on and so forth. Of course, I don't use that language in the website, but that's what I'm trying to convey, that the work we are going to do is a deep process that takes time mm -hmm. and that allows us to understand how some unconscious forces drive the uh, behavior. 
Yeah, you want to talk about the experience of psychoanalysis without using psychoanalytic jargon. Without using that uh, vocabulary that yeah. may not be understood clearly. So in general, that's something that I add. And the rest of my website is similar to what you have described in terms of your own website. Mm -hmm. One thing that I thought was interesting is that the statistics of a website are clear that people only look at two pages and yeah. then they move on. At best. At best, exactly. Yeah. So if they stay in the website, they will look at two pages and take a few seconds there and then move on. Yeah. So we have to catch their attention as quickly as possible. Yeah. And I, I've seen in the statistics how many people actually go on the website or on the Psychology Today uh, directory. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing that not everybody call you. Because I think like sometimes I get like 300 people looking yes. at my website. <laughs> and yes. <laughs> No call. No. <laughs> Which is at the same time a relief and a concern. <laughs> It can be. Both. It can be indeed. <laughs> Still on what happens before the first session, mm -hmm. do you feel like uh, now that you are allowed to call back your patient that there is a difference to you in the way you relate to your patients or that they relate to you? Yes, it feels, let me use this word, fresh. Mm -hmm. Once we meet for the first consultation, the patient comes to me fresh in terms of I have not told this to anyone and I don't know anything. So I can sense and experience the patient as nervous mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. and I can experience it uh, firsthand. To paraphrase what you're saying is that my sense is that now there's a stronger sense of privacy. Yes. Like mm -hmm. people come to you and it's it's still secret. Mm -hmm. When they come to TRCC when you're in training, having to go through their intake coordinator and also having to see you in a communal space breaks something of the privacy and that really holds therapy. Mm -hmm. Just um, before we, we move on to the next session, there's something I'd like to talk about is how do we get back to our patients and does it matter? I think it matters the way I handle the referrals, meaning when a patient reaches out to me, is to return the message in the same way I got it. For yeah. example, if the patient calls me, I will call back. If the patient sends me an email, I will email back. Mm -hmm. Or if the patient goes through my website, which has a different uh, email address, I go oh, through okay. that email address to reach out the patient. So I try to respond in kind, so, so to speak. I do uh, things the same way you do. Mm -hmm. We know someone, he had a potential patient who sent him an email. And our friend and colleague decided to call the, the person. person. Yes. And we wondered after if it was why the patient never reached out again. Yeah. It speaks to the need to indeed answer in the way the patient decided to get in touch with us. Yes. And we may have some clinical understanding through the, the way the patient is communicating with us. Oh, I think you. And definitely. it will unfold in the treatment, I think. And you know, it, I think it's a way to start welcoming patients the way they come. Yes. Because if we decide on the way we want to communicate with them, mm -hmm. we are already imposing a pre-existing frame on them mm -hmm. that is in some ways a counter goal in general of uh, psychoanalysis, yes. which is to welcome the unknown, welcome people as they are, mm -hmm. and try to help them find their own way. I mean, we will, as analysts, will have an influence on the way the analysis is going to, to take place. Mm -hmm. But still, the less we impose ourselves on our patients, I think the better it is. Yes. And so to respect, without questioning, the way they wanted to get in touch with us, as mundane as it seems, yes. is already indicates them who they're going to have to deal with. Correct. And from a different perspective, let's say a patient reaches out to me through email and then I decide to call the patient, that might be construed in the fantasy of the patient as an aggression. Actually, for some patients, it might actually be good because it will feed their symptoms and they will like that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, every, many things can be done as long as they are thought through and work in analysis or in supervision. Yes. Uh, Still, as Frank Z or Winnicott said at some point, there's no need to, I think it was Winnicott, to make intentional mistakes in therapy. They will happen no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> Now we're going to move to the first session in person.
Let's talk now about the first session. We will start with how things happened while we were in training. One of the aspects that impacts the way we work at TRCC is that we use communal space. That means that we may see a patient in different rooms depending on the day and time mm -hmm. that the rooms are available. The rooms, of course, have a decor that is neutral, as neutral they can be, but they don't present any of the features that somehow are connected to our personality as an analyst. And how was it for you? One of the things that comes to mind immediately while we are seeing patients there is that the in first place that the patients know that we are training. Yeah. So they come to this communal space for the first session and they realize that there are 18 or 19 different rooms there. More like 10 or 12. I think you're right. Once they enter the room where we are going to have our first session, nothing in there tells them anything about us. Mm -hmm. So what they know about us is that we're candidates. Yeah. How was it for you? That didn't show up so often for me as much as the, the thought that I was projecting on my patients. Mm -hmm. that That's they, what we want to know. Exactly. <laughs> that they knew I was training. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I was concerned more about are they going to ask me if they, I have enough experience? Are they going to ask me directly how many patients I have seen? And so on and so forth. I think it raises a question for them that they are paying a low fee Therefore, they get uh, low-fee therapy. It also makes us feel like low-fee therapists. Absolutely. So that's in my mind at the moment that I received my patients there for the first time. Of course, as time went on, my concerns about my capacity went to the background. Mm -hmm. My concerns about the lack of stability in the frame, the, physical, the physical frame, physical frame yes. came to the foreground. Yeah, I had somewhat the same experience, a little bit different because as a clinical psychologist from France, I, I think I experienced more a cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. I think maybe uh, that's how we, you would say in English, meaning that I knew that I had experience. I knew I had seen patients yes. before. I also knew that the frame in which the current patients were seeing me indicated something else. Yes, That's something I had to keep in mind and to work on, clearly in supervision. And I agree that the question of the stability of the physical frame became more and more important. I don't know if you did that, but through the years, because you have to stay a few years there, I actually succeeded in using only one office. Mm -hmm. And I remember that I added a few items inside the room mm -hmm. that other people could use when I wasn't there. But still, it made the room more suitable for me. I remember changing how the items were placed. The furniture? The furniture, yeah, a little yeah. bit. On the side, as it was a communal space or shared space, I changed the furniture in a way that wasn't just brutally my own, like uh, sometimes we have seen where people would just mix things around and leave it this way. The physical frame was taxing in some ways. Uh, and it was taxing in a deeper way to patients who are more disorganized. I do remember getting to the room and noticing the couch was in a different position, mm -hmm. uh, the chairs were in a different position, and I experienced patients standing at the door, not able to enter mm -hmm. the room because something was off but for them. We are going astray from maybe the, the theme of the podcast, mm -hmm. I mean, the beginning of therapy. I think there's something to say about the effect of the predetermined fee. During the first session, the fee is a significant part of our work. We talked about it during the first podcast. I felt like uh, having the fee set before the first session created a very different dynamic uh, while we were in training. I think it, it illustrates somehow a deep possession of our work. To put it differently, I think it emphasized that we were in training and that we were not in control of, of the therapy we were offering. I agree with you on that. I would also say that it magnified the sense that we were offering a service and that the institute had set the fee for the service, meaning an exchange of services for money, mm -hmm. which clouds a little bit the empowering process of having the patient and the analyst decide the fee. It's not something that we sell, mm -hmm. something that we agree upon. Mm -hmm. And it clearly showed in the first session. 
we should point out how much space did we have to decide whether or not we thought a patient was a good fit. Once we agreed to see the patient on the phone with the intercoordinator, yes. my experience is that we didn't have as much space as we do now to feel free to tell someone that actually it might not work with us. We had to in some way. That, that's a, that's I, a I sense I I didn't experience that. I oh, okay. think I wanted the patient because in the end, this was training and therefore I needed to accrue hours. So that's also. different. That's a little bit okay. different. I didn't experience okay. if it was a good fit or not. I would experience that after a while mm -hmm. working with the patients. However, the fact that I wanted to accrue hours impacted my counter-transference, of course. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I think that's something uh, that we feel clearly less today. Yes. Nowadays, especially once we get a few years into the private practice, we yeah. realize some patients will go, the patients will mm -hmm. come in. There is less anxiety connected to accrue uh, hours. Mm -hmm. Once your clinic is a little bit established, when yes. you have enough patients that you're not worried that you're going to be broke at the end of the month, yes. I think you can start thinking in terms of whether or not people are good are fit good for you. Are fit or not. Yeah. It has happened that at some point we reached that conclusion, both the patient and the analyst. Mm -hmm. However, during the training, while we were accruing hours, There's a real it pressure. felt different. Yeah, you have to accumulate your hours to get out of here. Yes. Something like that. Let's talk about the first session now that we are in private practice. Now that you are in practice, what happens when they are in the office with you? When they are in the office, they want to see if we are a good fit. Mm -hmm. I have experiences during the first session when we realize, both the patient and myself, that we are not a good fit. For example, the patient comes to therapy and asks for CBT. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not with me. I cannot offer what I have not been trained to offer. And on the other hand, my theoretical frame is quite far from CBT. So that happens in the first session. Yeah, I think you might have more of those experiences because you're in network. Correct. That people see your name on the list and they really have no idea what you're providing. Yes. And even though there are parts of the list that say what kind of frame... But it doesn't I, mean anything. It doesn't doesn't mean anything to them. Like it's therapy. Uh, yes, therapy and they sometimes they don't understand the difference between CBT or DBT or psychoanalysis or psychodynamic psychotherapy or... For the last two, I think they're not the only one who don't really know the difference. But. Well, we're still debating what's the difference between those two, psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic, uh, I mean psychodynamic psychotherapy. I mean, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but psychodynamic is really just an American term. <laughs> to me, it's like a really politically correct term for, like, it, it, it's a, it's free of any danger. Ooh, yeah, it's not psychodynamic, it's psychodynamic. Well, what the hell does that mean, psychodynamic? As if you couldn't be, you could be something else that's psychodynamic. Well, Psycho flat, uh, like, it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think people are making the distinction based on the frequency of the treatment, meaning once a week, twice a week. Dynamic? Why is uh, the term uh, dynamic? I, yeah. Like, it's like, yeah, it's moving, like, there's a dynamic. What the hell are we talking about? <laughs> I mean, you know, one of those terms that are de describing so poorly the object that they're referring to. Anyway, let's go back to the first session. How do you conceive the first physical contact when you, you have a patient? Do you go see them in the waiting area? Do you wait for them in the office? Usually, I during the first contact, uh, meaning the email or phone call that I receive, and we talked on the phone or by email, I, ex I tell them to how to get to my office. I ask them to wait for me in the waiting area mm -hmm. and that I look for them at the appointed hour. When a patient doesn't do that, that allows me to begin to form an understanding of the dynamics. Mm -hmm. Oh, that word again, dynamic, but uh, of the patient. Well, but then it makes sense. It makes sense there. I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying psychodynamic <laughs> doesn't make sense. I'm just, I just don't understand why we would use this term instead of yeah, psychoanalysis. I, I, hear you. I don't hear the added value. To use that term. Yeah. yeah. As if psychoanalysis was not psychodynamic. Yeah. Uh, it's like an expurge version of psychoanalysis, a, a, a sex-free version of psychoanalysis. <laughs> <laughs> Unconscious-free, yeah. something like that. For example, if a patient arrives and I am in my office with a different patient and knock or the first consultation knocks on the door, it's kind of a little bit awkward for them, for me. And then they realize that I had asked them to stay in the waiting area. Mm -hmm. So that's one, one detail. The other is that I usually 
go to the waiting area. I don't know who is the patient. I just say who's waiting for Edgar Danielson. I don't ask and name the patient. I do it the other way around. I think I'm going to do that now. And I usually go out of my office and I actually walk through people and I try to decipher whether or not they're French because, <laughs> because usually I, I receive French people. And then I say their name very quietly and look around if there's yes. any reaction. But the way you're doing is pretty good. I have to say, I noticed another way to greet patients that scared me a little bit. One of my patients described a scene to me. I was sitting and she came to me. She said very loudly, welcome, so-and-so. And my patient just stared at her being like, no, it's not me. <laughs> I never thought anyone would do that. I assume that when people come to therapy, even if they might not be shameful, they still want some privacy. Yes. We don't know if the patient is struggling with or is experiencing a dilemma about therapy. And if there's a dilemma and you are somehow exposed, some people may feel vulnerable. So I rather say who's looking for Edgar Danielson, and of course, one person will say me. Yeah. And then we come to my office, I show them where they can sit, and we take it from there. Mm -hmm. Of course, how close or how far away they sit from me, how they sit comfortably or not. Yeah, that's going to be my next question. So okay. How did you think about your office in terms of first session? I do remember someone asked me, do I have to lie down now? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, no, it's not necessary unless you feel comfortable. But let's talk face-to-face -face first. Yeah, first yeah. session usually face-to-face. Face-to-face. Yeah, me too. Uh, so they sit down and if I feel that they are uncomfortable, I would say, you know, you can move the pillows, you can sit as comfortably as you can. I try to make the first session as easy as possible. Mm. But then, of course, that is in my mind how it is for them, or at least how I perceive them in the room with me. Yeah, of course. We never know exactly what the patient would need, even after we know them. Uh, we yes. Yeah. But even more so before. Mm. I don't know if I have thought about my office in terms of first session. I certainly thought about it in terms of long term. But just as you described, I uh, try to have them seat in front of me. Uh, yeah, I had a few people who asked me if they had to lie down right away. Mm -hmm. I heard of some people doing that, lying down right from the get-go, mm -hmm. but I feel like maybe the first session, I feel more comfortable establishing a contact with person sitting in front of me. I do the same. Even for those patients who are experienced in psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. and it has happened to me, we have the first consultation face-to-face, -face, and the patient will say at some point that they want to lie down, and they will do it from the second session on. Could you describe how you organized the first sessions and, and mm -hmm. also why? The first session, I introduce myself again. I say my name mm -hmm. and then I give my card to the person so that the person has my contact information. I don't want to forget that there are many different ways to communicate with me. Mm -hmm. So the card has my email address, my phone number, mm -hmm. my complete address, etc. I see. And, and I want the patient to choose the one that worked for them. Then I would say something like, what brings you to therapy? Mm -hmm. And I also mentioned that it's okay to start wherever they want in terms of what they want to communicate to me. Mm -hmm. The idea is that they feel as free as possible and they don't have to go through a list of items, but they can perhaps begin to engage a little bit of free association if possible. During the first session? Yes. Why do you do that? I want to create an atmosphere that will somehow become a model for sessions afterwards, yeah, the first I session. See. And in addition, I have some information from the patient already because in my case, once a patient asks for a consultation, they usually file online an intake questionnaire. Okay. And that allows me to have some specific information that goes to my files, age, emergency phone, prior therapeutic processes the person has been, major events in life, and so on and so forth. But that's I too see. structured, and I don't work like that. So why do you ask for it? It's more for a legal reason than anything else. Okay, I see. I'm not structured in terms of my sessions. Okay. So from the first session, the consultation, I hope that the patient feels as free as possible to tell mm -hmm. their story. 
yeah, things are happening in some ways the same way. I, I actually show them the seeds they can use. And then some people just come and they talk. There's no content problem, but some are frozen in front of you and they mm-hmm. don't know what to say, what to do. Yes. And usually I engage them with, okay, so maybe we can start with what brings you here. Yes. And eventually after they can tell me something of their story, I ask also how they heard about me. And recently I've been asking specifically why me? Because I found that was helpful for me to get a sense of the beginning of the transference? That's a good question. I never ask that specifically, but I, I guess I want to do it because even if it's a directory in a health insurance company, there are many therapists in this block. It can be just by chance and maybe they don't even know. But mm-hmm. uh, as I said, uh, someone recently told me that I look like I wouldn't be a threat. You can see that there was already some projection or some expectations mm-hmm. uh, looking at the way I presented on my website. It really helps us understand how things start, I, I think. I don't ask my patients to fill out a document on my website, uh-huh. but I do give them a paper, either after the first session or after the first uh, few sessions, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how strongly I feel the connection is. Yes. Sometimes I'm completely off, by the way, feeling that the connection is very strong and the person never comes back. Uh-huh. Sometimes I feel like the connection is not strong and people stay for years. But I, I do ask, yeah, I think somehow a bit, a bit like you, first name, last name, address, emergency number. I ask them where they work, how much they make, if they have insurance there, yes. their insurance number, if they have one, etc. Mm-hmm. things like that. But I also tell them that they should feel free to fill out only the information they feel comfortable with. I do the same. And just like you, I think it all this is done in some ways to emulate or to give them a sense of what's to come. That's the way I work. That's the way I'm connecting with them now. That's yes. the way I will connect to them uh, later on. Like I can ask some information, but I will not resent them for not providing them to me. They can decide when they want and what they want to say. Do you explain psychoanalysis to your prospective patients? Once I hear their stories, Mm -hmm. and there is plenty of time for them to tell me why they are here, Mm -hmm. I then introduce a little bit about how I work. Mm -hmm. So I begin by saying I am a psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. I say that purposefully, and then I try to explain using some images like for example i use the image of an iceberg i talk about the tip of the iceberg as behavior but underneath the tip of the ice there's a huge amount of ice and so i say that what we try to do in psychoanalysis is is to go deeper into the iceberg it might feel like a cold image but it works for (laughs) for most (laughs) (laughs) and then i try to explain how that shows uh, up in the work we are doing, that's when I explain the fundamental rule mm-hmm. from both perspectives. Try to put into words whatever you are thinking or experiencing in the body or feeling. And from my perspective, to listen evenly to all what they are saying, including their silences. Yeah. So they get a sense of how things are going to unfold. Yeah. Now, experience tells me that I will have to repeat that again. I know, me too. And again. Just like you, I think I try to explain to people, even if I know that I'm not teaching them a class, I give them some information so that those information have been shared at some point. I don't expect them to digest it or to understand Mm -hmm. everything of it, but it has been said. Yes. And then when the next time I will refer to it, or maybe at some point in the therapy, they will, oh, all of a sudden have a glimpse of, oh, that's what you meant, maybe. Yeah. I try to make sure that that people are understanding that this is not going to be a CBT therapy. Yes. Uh, meaning, tell them that they I won't give them any homework, that they can decide to uh, by themselves to have homework if they want to. But for me, the only thing I ask them to do is to come to therapy, say whatever comes to their mind, mm-hmm. and to pay the fees. Those are the three things I ask them to do. And besides that, they are free to do whatever they want. I try to explain the idea of free association because at the beginning of my experience, the first session, people want to talk, but they are not so sure that talking will actually help them. Correct. And what I uh, point out right away is that it's counterproductive to focus on something, Mm -hmm. that usually to focus on a theme is the best way to avoid it or to avoid what it actually is connected to in the psyche. Yes. And that if we want to get a better sense of who they are in a way that they don't even know but still are, they should be open to the possibility to talk about incidental ideas 
Is that uh, what you would say? Ideas that comes apparently out of the blue. Uh, out of the blue. You're talking about... Out of nowhere. Uh, you yes. don't know why, but feel free to keep talking about it. Don't yes. feel that it's out of topic and that you should stop yourself. It seems like it has both some kind of a relieving aspect for patients, but also a very scary aspect. It is a scary, especially it, for those who tend to be rigid. Yeah, you lose uh, control. Very rigid defenses, like being obsessional, for example. So they need to come prepared to use the time. Mm -hmm. in an efficient manner. It's a way of controlling it. Do you have any specific rules in terms of what is allowed and not allowed in your office? We know someone who doesn't allow patients to drink. Yes. Water. I mean, to drink water. To drink water, yeah. That would be oral gratification. I don't establish any rules like those. However, when it happens for the first time, I may mention that it's interesting that the person has not stopped drinking water during the whole session. Yeah, if it happens significantly. Yes, yes correct. Okay. Then at that point, perhaps that's a way to defend against something. We don't know mm. what. Other therapists wouldn't allow a patient to charge their phones. Really? On what ground? I heard that from one specific therapist. Okay, and what was... Therapist didn't explain the reason behind the rule. Okay. My sense <clears throat> is that it would break the frame so the analyst is providing something that... Oh, gratification. Yes, it's a gratification. Oh, man. Yeah. I don't have any rules like that. However, if something begins to crystallize in the room that is repetitive, then you can somehow try to distracts it. us from the work we are doing, then I will very gently bring that up. Mm -hmm. I feel like in some ways, the more constraints we are imposing, the more we are likely to fight around them and the more we are disturbing free association. Yeah. But if they were behavioral, as you said, that were disrupt the analysis, I would point them out. I would point it Yet, out. Yet, I remember that Winnicott, again, had a patient who was touching, how do you call that, the button from uh, his vest. And uh -huh. after a few years or after a few sessions, Winnicott then said, hey, what about this? Uh -huh. And the guy answered something like, you notice that now, so I'm going to have to do something else. What Winnicott mentioned is that you have to wait for the patient to mention something. Mm. Otherwise, it's not analyzable. But I would say that the, the limit to it is that when they do something that is so disruptive to the therapy, then maybe in some way they are yes. saying it enough. But small things, I think we have to be careful. If you try to interpret from nothing behaviors like drinking as if it's just an oral gratification... I think you lose track with the fact that if we don't drink, we die. And that sometimes drinking is just drinking. If you yes. try to overanalyze, then you are yes. actually choking people like yes. they can't breathe. I will make a mental note about it. And when it, there is a time or a window to explore it, I will do it. But that's later. So let's go back to the first session. Talking about the things we do to emulate the therapy, I tell my prospective patients that they can ask any questions about me they want. doesn't mean they will get an answer, but I really want them to feel like they are allowed to say and to think about whatever they want. I think it really helps in terms of putting the idea of pre-association seriously. Mm -hmm. The way I will answer will depend on whether or not I think the question or my answer can help the therapy. Mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying. I find it quite difficult to know if my answers will advance a treatment or not. I do ask them if they have any questions, but they usually ask about the treatment process or the fee or cancellation policies, things like that. You see, my stand mm -hmm. is a reaction to the idea that the analyst has to be completely unknown, which is something I believe in. I think uh, the therapist should have his own therapy or her own, own therapy, mm -hmm. and that when we receive patients, it is their time and their space. But we can't be too absolute in terms of what we say about us and what we don't say. No. And also, we want the patient to feel allowed to think, mm -hmm. to wonder and to ask yes but still be clear that we might not actually answer all the questions they bring yeah another thing i do to emulate the therapy is to emphasize to during the first session that i allow if not i encourage patients to complain about the therapy and or the analyst 
Mm-hmm. And I put it this way. I prefer a patient who comes back angry than a patient who doesn't come back. I stand with you on that. I would prefer overt aggression, not violence, but (laughs) aggression than being politely dismissive or ghosting me, as people say nowadays. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's the current term. Again, the idea is to illustrate in practice what it means to really free associate and to experience the analysis as a safe place to think that when we tell people that they can say anything they want, if we also tell them, well, you're not allowed to ask a question, you're not allowed to complain or to criticize the frame without being told that you are only resisting, then in some ways you are going against what you are preaching. I agree. Have you have any patients who say something about googling you or finding information about you through other sources? If you Google me, you will just find my uh, webpage. Oh, so you are very anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> I worked on that. <laughs> I was not able to work on that. So <laughs> yeah, Well, you had a... I had a public life that, yeah. you know, I cannot erase. I that. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't even know if they could find the places I worked at before in France. But I'm pretty open about where I worked. Okay. Because I think it also mm-hmm. shows a light on, uh, I guess, how I will listen to them. Another thing I do, I tell my patient that they will be free to contact me whenever they want. But it doesn't mean that I will answer them whenever Mm -hmm. they contact me. And I'm doing this because I don't want my patients to censor themselves more than needed or to add another layer of self-censorship. You want to contact me? No problem. My responsibility is to decide when I will answer. I answer not depending on the content of the email or the communication, but more in terms of, okay, well, now I have time, so I do it. Okay. I think we have a different stance on this uh, or a different approach. I don't deal with their questions about emailing me or sending me a text or calling me until it happens for the first time. Or when they bring up that they wanted to contact me, but they were not sure if they could or not. So, which sometimes takes a while. The reason why I'm proactive Mm -hmm. uh, in that area is that your patients might have wanted to contact you way before they actually complain about it in session. Correct. I agree with you. And again, it's from my point of view, like most of the things I present during the first session, I don't think that people will use it as such. Mm-hmm. It's to create an atmosphere. I think you're working on creating a therapeutic alliance with the patient while I'm focusing on exploring the fantasy when the situation unfolds later on. It's true that one of the downsides of my approach is to not let fantasies around my availability stir up as much. But they do eventually. You know, also, my practice is influenced by my work with psychosis, where your affects have to fit your words. One thing I would add, finally, is that we have been presenting first sessions as something that happens pretty much the same way every time. Mm -hmm. And we cannot end the discussion on that subject without mentioning that it is, of course, a fiction. It is a That fiction. every first session is very different. Yes. Some patients will be very interested in the frame and won't say anything about themselves. Others will have a lot of things to say and you won't be able to talk about the frame. Mm-hmm. And I think this is important to bring that up because another aspect of the reality of the first session is that you have to adapt right away to the person in front of you. Yeah. I think the most challenging first sessions are those in which the patient doesn't know what to say and it's the first session and we don't know each other but the patient seems to be quite reluctant to talk Mm -hmm. and the other challenging first session is when the patient has been sent to therapy Mm. by a significant other let's say the wife or the boyfriend or the mother or the whomever that's bad and it's difficult because the person feels trapped in the room with us and the patient is trapped Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> in the room with us and probably with his or her relatives. Yes, indeed. So we are repeating in the in the room what already is happening outside. Of course, we also talk about how everything is confidential. We talk about 
usually how the sessions are going to last around 45 minutes, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little less, etc. But these might not require for us to elaborate on them. Now, there is a question that we would like to discuss is the differences between patients new to therapy and those who already had experienced one. How did you experience that difference? Well, in the first session, if the patient has been in therapy before and is coming back to therapy after a few years or because their therapist went to another city or so on and so forth, I find it's easier to have a dialogue during that first session. In fact, I've had some examples when the patient really knows, oh, it's time. So... <laughs> <laughs> I see. And the patient knows that they have completed the 45 minutes. And yeah, I find it easier to work with them, except in those cases when someone comes to psychoanalysis from a different therapeutic approach, let's say CBT, and their understanding of the therapeutic process is that I will give them some assignments or homework. And I will give some advice or help them think differently. And that begins to crystallize in the first session because mm -hmm. they immediately ask if I am going to give them homework, what books should I suggest? Yeah. If there is a podcast that I would recommend, maybe this, or if there... <laughs> <laughs> would be eerie. Uh, and <laughs> or if there's YouTube videos that yeah. I would suggest. So a patient that comes from a completely different theoretical framework find themselves struggling with the first session. I found that this is a struggle. How do you see the question of fee determination in that context? I usually have the conversation about the fee almost by the end of the session. I leave about 15 minutes to have that conversation. And the fee is an agreement between the patient and myself. So I see this as a co-construction we're making. Even if you're in network? If I am in network, we need to talk about the deductible. Okay. And the possibility that the patient will have to pay the fee until the deductible is reached. So that's part of the agreement. Sometimes we don't know that during the first session. Mm -hmm. And there have been situations when health insurance company make a mistake. They charge the patient a copay that is not the right one. Mm -hmm. And so we need to come back and revisit our agreement. Okay. Even if a patient is in network, there is a conversation about fees. Why? Because I also have a cancellation policy mm -hmm. and they will have to pay my cancellation fee, which is something that I cannot charge the health insurance. I see. I discussed that during the first session. I explained that the time that we agree upon is their time mm. and that I don't give that time slot to anyone else. Therefore, if they fail to notify me according to my policy, which is 48 hours, I will have to charge a late cancellation fee or mm -hmm. a no-show fee because I, I cannot claim that time yeah, to yeah. the insurance. What about you, Gregoire, the, in terms of the fee? Since we recorded the, the first podcast on the fee determination process, there is something I learned in my practice is that I now take more than just one session to decide on the fees. Mm -hmm. Tell me more. I realized that as an out-of-network provider, to decide on the first session I was actually putting too much pressure on uh, the therapy. Mm -hmm. that I needed to know more of the patient to have a sense of what fee would be relevant to this person. Yeah. For example, you can have someone who at first will be uh, very giving, saying, oh yeah, I can pay whatever, no matter what. And if you then say, okay, sure, then you give you full fee and person says, sure, 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 but probably won't come back. Instead, you could just say, well, we, we will discuss it and we will see. Mm -hmm. And what could happen is for this person to eventually um, demonstrate how he or she will say no matter what to please, even uh, hurting him or herself. Uh, what do you do during the first few sessions until you reach an agreement? Usually uh, patients ask uh -huh. and if they don't I bring it up and I say uh, that the fees are connected to their resources uh -huh. not just the salary but resources because some people don't have any salary but have a lot of wealth mm -hmm. but what I found out is that you can't really understand it in 20 minutes I agree uh, you can certainly probably have a sense of a copay 
because already that's somehow easy. the fees is yes. pre-established or partially pre-established. Yes. But when it's not established at all and it's actually just a discussion between you and someone else, mm-hmm. you start from the ground. And my experience now is that I say, well, so from what you're telling me, probably my fee would be X. But let's take a few sessions and we will discuss it again. And probably after three, four sessions, I get a much better sense of the patient situation, of something of the transference, a dynamic that the patient is already putting into place. Uh Then I can decide to charge more or less. Okay. So you charge retroactively. You go back to the first session. I won't wait for too long, but I Mm -hmm. think to wait for three sessions. I mean, I don't charge the first. So if we decide on the fourth, it leaves three sessions to pay. Three sessions, yes. Okay. And I'm pretty flexible. If they want to pay two sessions then and then two sessions later, etc., I don't really care. Mm -hmm. I think the most important part is to trust them. I am now in a situation where I have enough patients that I can take the risk to not being paid by someone who would leave uh, after four sessions and never show up. But to me, it really creates a different atmosphere that is, I would say, that creates more space for the patient to feel heard. In my case, let's talk about the copay. For example, I tell the patient that they can pay the copay for each session or we can do it on a monthly basis. I don't have much leeway there in terms of my fee because that is established by the health insurance company. Mm -hmm. But there is a sense of trust that the patient can gather if I say you can pay at the end of the month. Yeah, I think you have to take the risk. It's a risk, and it usually works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess this concludes our podcast on beginnings of therapy. We will see you in two months for a second podcast on ends of therapy. Meanwhile, we hope to receive your questions and comments and we will respond to them in our podcast in one month. You can send your comments or questions on either SoundCloud, Twitter or Facebook. Just look for discussions on psychoanalysis or directly through the email discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. The links will be in the podcast descriptions. And if you like what we are doing through our podcast, please give us five stars. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.